Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, I know you've seen this uh, video that's been making the rounds. I know you've seen it because we watched it together and did a whole uh, episode of our uh, video uh, series about viral videos about it. But uh, we had the video about crying in space and what that might consist of. Yeah, it is a great video. It was put out by the ISS commander, International Space Station commander, uh, Chris Hadfield. Mm -hmm. And he demonstrates what it is like to cry in space. Now, he doesn't actually read a sad novel and then begin, you know, tears. Because he's an astronaut. He's a man. He is is manned up to uh, venture into the void. And he has that, uh, he, he seems like a really nice guy, but... But, you know, he has he's a, got a mustache. He has a mustache. He has kind of a, a there's a certain machismo mm-hmm. to anybody that goes up into space, male or female. So, um, yeah, so if an astronaut is going to demonstrate what it's like to cry in space, they're going to have to squirt some water in their eyes because these are some hard-boiled eggs. That's right. Man or woman, you are a cowboy in outer space. Yes. So, but one of the great things about this video is that it really does pull back the curtains on what it is like. There's rote day-to-day activities, including crying, right? Because yeah. Um, I, you know, assume that there are lots of emotional issues in outer space, and we've talked about this a bit. Oh, it's um, a, it's a high stress environment, right? And as we're going to get into uh, in in this and another podcast, it's a hostile environment, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's possible that that tears could occur, and in all likelihood they have occurred. It, you know, it's not just we've joked. Um, there've been some pretty tense moments. You know, they lock yeah. themselves in the bathroom and just boohoo. Yeah. Well, and then also you can. There are other reasons tears can form. So, um, you know, various uh, eye irritation, eye irritations, and sinus yeah. and whatnot. And you know that has happened. Uh, but yeah, th- his work has been great because he has he has done a, a really nice job in these videos of shining light on uh, space minutia. You know, um, the little tiny bits of daily life that you might not think about. Like if if we didn't know better, I might think that they forgot to assign him anything to do. And he's, <laughs> he's just shooting a bunch of videos. But of course, he has plenty of other uh, well, roles as well. I think the the one of the cool things about this video is that it also underscores this idea that. Uh, Everything in space, everything in microgravity behaves differently. So even mm-hmm. though we bring our portable cages with us, right, we bring our own artificial environments, um, you know, in the capsule in the International Space Station, uh, we still have to sort of relearn how to be human. So imagine that you have this really poignant moment that you're stirring up in your emotions and all of a sudden tears begin to well up in your eyes. Well, they don't just flow down, obviously, because there's no gravity. Instead, they just pool atop your eyeballs, growing fatter and just more obscenely <laughs> large <laughs> until yeah. they break off into this big glob in front of you and float off. And then somebody could conceivably turn around and, and they're about to say, hey, what are you crying about? And then, oh, they, a whole glob of your tears just goes into their mouth. That's right. Yeah. And so it becomes this otherworldly experience, right? And I imagine that the first couple of times people cry in space is probably really fascinating. In fact, I bet that whatever you're sad about, you know, that kind of, it, no matter, it no longer matters, right? Because in front of you is this big glob that you can play with. What if you're missing gravity? You're you're crying because you miss gravity so much, and then that just makes it all the worse because you're like, I can't even cry like normal. This is how I cry now. My tears mock me. <laughs> yeah, I, as I mentioned in the video, it also um, uh, reminded me a bit of um, 
Dante's Inferno, there's a bit there where Dante and Virgil are in the, uh, on the frozen lake of Cositis at the bottom of hell. And these individuals are, are frozen in this lake with their heads facing up, uh, so that when they cry, uh, in, in tears and, you know, repenting their sins or tears of anger, the, uh, the water pools in their sockets and freezes there. Um, which, you know, if you start to think about it, th- if you start to imagine worst case scenarios, you could possibly envision a, a situation where uh, you're crying in space and there's been a temperature failure in the capsule. Mm-hmm. Temperatures are plummeting and those globs of uh, of water in your eye sockets could potentially freeze solid. So you get eyeball popsicles. Yeah. Nice. Now, if you're exposed to the void itself, then the tears would probably just boil off. But that's that's an entirely different situation. Yeah, an entirely different episode as yes. well. Uh, well, in order for us to really talk about what it's like to be human in space exploration or to relearn our humanness and how to deal with it, uh, particularly emotions, we should probably talk about space itself and yes. then the International Space Station, which is sort of where the grand experiment has been playing out. Okay. Yeah, well, space itself, the void, the, the great black yonder as it is it's uh it's it is a very hostile environment because one of one of the things we always have to to drive home here is that as human beings we are a we're an organism that has evolved to live in a very thin layer of even our own atmosphere in our own environment there are places on earth that we cannot live without uh, significant uh, uh technological help so if you take us out of the planet entirely, then you're, you've taken us into a place of death. Yeah, true. I mean, we don't think about it because we don't see it, but uh, we are dealing with hundreds of pounds of pressure in the air, right? We're just kind of used to moving around in it. Yeah. But in space, as we know, is that it's a vacuum. There is no air pressure. Molecules are scant, right? The, the way I like to think of it is, is think back to Star Trek. You see William Shatner walking around. Um, and he's, he's wearing his girdle, of course, and he's very he's very confident in his uh, in his torso because that girdle is pressing in on him. Take that girdle away, and he's going to be very very self conscious. He's going to be totally put off. Uh, he's, uh, nothing's going to feel right, and he's going to have to relearn how he's doing everything around the ship because the atmospheric pressure is kind of like a girdle pressing in on us all the time, mm-hmm. and it becomes such a part of of who we are and how we experience the world. We we, we don't even begin to register it unless there's a significant change. And it's funny because it's hard to divorce yourself from this uh, notion of air pressure or, or even air molecule, molecules not being present yeah, in this Yeah, because we scenario. think of just empty air, but of course air is not empty. Right. It, is, it is heavy, it is thick, it is pressing in on us. And space is an environment where that is not present. And uh, the temperature of space is at its coldest just the temperature of the leftover glow from the Big Bang the radiation known as the cosmic microwave background bathes the entire universe in a temperature of only 2.7 Kelvin. That's less than three degrees above absolute zero or minus 455 degrees Fahrenheit. And, of course, we have even more stats about uh, what the environment of space is like if you don't happen to have a spacesuit. But that's a separate podcast episode. Tune in for that. But if you do have a spacesuit... And your destination is the International Space Station. You are luck because this is a habitable artificial satellite in low orbit space traveling about 17,000 miles plus change an hour in order to stay in orbit, making a gentle curve around the Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's and up there about 230 miles. Yep. Um, 370 kilometers. And when you're in orbit like that, things are weightless because they're all falling at the same velocity. Mm-hmm. So um, we should point out that the ISS is actually in its 13th year. That's right. First module went up in uh, 1998. 
we keep adding more to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep uh, hearing uh, descriptions like trailer park or modules that snap together. And- yeah. Well, because that's the only way to do it, right? You can't take the whole. You got to bring it up piece by piece and assemble it there. It's kind of, kind of like my my bookshelf here at work. Like if I ever lose my job, there's no way I'll get all, all of them home because I brought them in a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. It would take you like a year to clear all of it out. Yeah, it's yeah. just and, and you know and that and all the other junk. But um, I've I've seen the cost estimated at around 150 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. But then I've also seen people talk about the cost of the International Space Station is really being the sort of thing that you can't. Maybe more than the cost, but the value. It's it's something you really can't even put up a dollar amount on because well, so yeah. much work, so much effort has gone into it. It is uh, it's kind of you know we don't have much in the way of of super projects today here on Earth, but mm-hmm. it is it is basically a, one of the modern marvels. It is a uh, it is like a pyramid for us. It is, and there has been a ton of research conducted, and uh, every expedition uh, actually has certain research goals in mind. So not only is it about maintaining the, the actual ISS, but it's also like, let's, let's take a look at how X behaves in microgravity or, mm-hmm. you know, some other experiment. In fact, uh, Expedition 35, which is right now the, the um, expedition that's in use, is um, being conducted by a six-person crew. Again, Chris Hadfield is the commander there. And they are uh, using an instrument called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer 2, by the way, not 1. It is a state-of-the-art particle physics detector. And recently in the news, there was an item about how they've gotten a width of dark matter using the spectrometer, which is really cool. Yeah. So it's it's right. The, the ISS is not just a place where astronauts pretend to cry. And then take videos. It's not just a place where there occasionally there's some sort of spat about a toilet going um, off the whack, but it is a place uh, on the cutting edge of science. It is. And it is a very, as we said, small space uh, of cutting edge science going on. We're talking about a living space that amounts to the equivalent of roughly one and a half Boeing 747s. So let's take a listen to what it sounds like, life aboard ISS and just some of the ambient noises so we can get an idea of, of uh, what sort of emotional landscape you might be butting up against that if you are an astronaut. Sounds like a lot of a lot of uh, music that I actually listen to. Like I, I get kind of a Autechre meets Nurse with Wound kind of uh, vibe there. A little ambient, a little industrial. It's it's nice. Yeah, and there's again that we sort of take uh, quietude or you know this when we really want quiet in our lives for granted because there is a way that you can actually get to some sort of total silence. Not always, right? There's mm-hmm. always going to be ambient noise in see, our I, world. Too. I like that though. I would go to sleep to that. Would you? I would prefer that to absolute silence, because absolute silence is just a little loud to me. Hmm. Okay. Actually, you had a good blog post about that recently, didn't you? Or maybe it was on Facebook that you threw that up. But there was a room that was sealed, wasn't it? Yes, yes. I did throw that up on Facebook. Absolute silence. And and silence, and people could not stand it, correct? Yeah, it can be a little maddening. And so I I tend to like a little white noise or a little music when I go to to sleep, if I can get it. I used to to live in a... um, a living space where the bedroom is really close to the uh, kitchen. And so uh, I could hear the dishwasher really well at night, and, and I love that. If it were up to me, I'd have the dif- dishwasher in the bedroom. Have you seen those toys that are for babies that basically have like a, 
white noise um, no. sound in it. So it's just sound like, I guess, like that amniotic fluid rushing through Whoa. the womb. I had not, I've not heard of that. Yeah, and there's okay. also a heartbeat setting. Is there a um, berbergibi noise that occurs? Berbergibi. A digestion noise? Yeah. No, but there should be because yeah, that's part of the Yeah, because prob- they probably identify that as a, as, as a friend. Huh. I'm just trying to imagine now um, getting one of those uh, sleep CDs and it having burgimi yeah. <laughs> digestion noises on it. Uh, all right, so I know we're spiraling off here. Um, Losing altitude, must must climb back up to avoid reentry. Get back in capsule. All right, so you're on the ISS. Mm-hmm. You're having a bad day. What might a bad day be in space? Well, <laughs> I mean. As, you know, it can get really bad uh, if you want to get into worst case scenarios. But um, just thinking about like a normal day again, you're in close confines mm-hmm. with uh, your coworkers all the time, uh, floating up in each other's business, having to take care that your lunches don't float into each other, that there's nothing, you know, falling off your face or, or out of your face that's going to float into the next person. That's um, true. And, and just the, the act of eating, mm-hmm. I've noticed, it reminds me of, um, like, broom hockey. Yeah. Like, you kind of have to use your hands to direct food into your mouth, of the, you know, the goal hole of food. Otherwise, yes, that's going to hit your coworker in the face. Yeah, and, and decorum kind of goes out of the uh, out the, the door a little bit with the uh, with with the, the eating in space. Like the videos you see, it's a totally different sort of uh, philosophy of eating. It's just kind of sending things up and catching them, and other things you're just slurping out of a little box. It's uh, it's interesting. It's I do like that you can kind of chomp it and catch it in your mouth. Um, but yeah, so there there are little. Um, Indignities that could be visited upon you, right? Yeah, I mean, if, to, if not, to not say careful. nothing else, uh, you know, things can get pretty hectic when you have situations like, oh, something might hit the station and we all have to crowd into one capsule mm-hmm. uh, just in case uh, we lose the station. I mean, it, it can get really stressful as well. Plus, there are, there are various stages that people tend to go to mm-hmm. when they're exposed to micro, microgravity. Uh, first, I mean, first of all, when you first step into microgravity, um, you uh, spend uh, the first phase of your, ju- your journey just adjusting to that cramped environment with an upset stomach, headaches, and space, mo- space motion sickness. Uh, according to NASA's Johnson Space Center, you'll also experience a 26% drop in sleep efficiency, uh, greatly reduced uh, REM. Uh, so in other words, you may experience dream deprivation as well. So you're uncomfortable, you're sluggish, mm-hmm. and you're still having to work with all these people. Right. I mean, it's it's hard enough... To, to deal with people uh, when, you, when you're just having the trouble getting a full night's sleep, much less when you have all these other factors going on. Um, and past that, it gets even weirder. There's like a second stage um, where you'll, uh, you'll, you'll have like a complete adaptation, they say, for about six additional weeks. So once you get past that first slump, you have kind of like the, the, the salad weeks uh, there in space. But then... Uh, so you th- have a sense of euphoria. Well, like, no, no, not yeah, euphoria. You're just competent. You're like, all right, I got this. I know how to use the bathroom. Okay. I know how to eat peanut butter in space. Thank you very much. I know how to move through the space without upsetting everybody's laptops yeah. and everything else. My sleep patterns are decent. Uh, and, I mean, that's a whole area there, the, the sleeping. Because I've seen the you – know, one of the things you have to remember is when we're sleeping, you – 
you might touch your face or whatnot. You might have some other kind of sleep issues that could cause some sort of weirdness or night terrors. But imagine sleeping and there's you have to strap your, your arms down because otherwise they'll float up and just start pawing at your, your face during the night. Well, it really is a tethered existence. And I was yeah. thinking about this is that you tether yourself to sleep. You tether all the items that you need mm-hmm. so that they're available and you can find them. Otherwise, everything's just floating around. Yeah, there, you. you can't just set stuff on the nightstand. Yeah. You've got to have them to, you know, tethered to your body or to your your, your bed wrappings. Well, and at this point, too, presumably you've, you have adjusted to the lack of diurnal or nocturnal triggers, right? So the day and night, um, you are beginning to say, okay, so this is a, this is my brain adjusting to this lack of light, this mm-hmm. sunlight, and um, a lack of touch yeah. as well. Because this is something that's pretty important. We've talked about this before. It's very comforting to be touched, but obviously you are, uh, you're with coworkers in the first place. Second of all, it's not really, you're not in a situation where you would be cuddling up, yeah. presumably. And and just imagine too, like say you wanted to say cuddle up with a, you say say you had a, like a nice blanket with you. The experience of cuddling up with that blanket would be extremely different in microgravity because imagine like a nice heavy blanket how it sort of sits on you. Yeah. Like you wouldn't be able, to, you wouldn't get that because yeah. the, you're, the gravity is not uh, not strong enough. That's true, right? Just even the the most basic thing of having that pressure around you is removed. And so in time, between week six and week 12, things start to get a little moody, uh, typically, uh, with people aboard uh, the space station. Uh, Russian uh, observations found that a number of the symptoms were linked to boredom and isolation. You become hypersensitive, irritable, less motivated. You may fly off the handle whenever a crew member uh, drifts into your personal space or, you know, borrow some of your stuff, you know, sort of. You know, dorm room uh, annoyances uh, to and uh, and so yeah, you get you get more uh, sensitivity to loud noises. Uh, your your musical preferences may change. Uh, exhaustion, sleep disturbances, loss of appetite might creep back into everything. It becomes a very negative time before finally, towards the end of your journey, you can expect to experience uh, agitation, lack of control, and uh, and then it sort of culminates with uh, the sense of space euphoria, where you finally sort of rise above it. So you have this whole. Um, Sort of journey through uh, the, through the the, the various uh, uh, ranges of human emotion. Right, those are huge ups and downs in emotion, and of course, uh, those people who are administrating the program are very cognizant of this, and obviously they try to choose people who are the healthiest mentally and can kind of roll with the punches, right? Yeah. Because if you slight someone, or if you're the one who slighted, you cannot go off the handle in this situation. In fact, one of the crews of Skylab, NASA's first attempt at a space station, became so annoyed uh, with their circumstances uh, that they placed that annoyance on mission control during their 84 days in space, and they mutinied, they sulked, and they turned off all communication. Oh, wow. Because, again, this is a, a very specific psychological situation. And if you need someone to blame, you can either blame each other or one another, or you can blame mission control, right? Yeah. I mean, you can also blame inanimate objects. Like, I, I've certainly stubbed my toe on, like, coffee tables before. And I think if I had an airlock, I would have I would have sent the coffee table out the airlock. I think the Roomba, too. I, no, the, the Roomba the is blameless. Really? Yeah. I feel like you've turned a corner with Roomba. Like you were, no. there was some annoyance with it, and now there's love. I don't remember having annoyance with Roomba. Um, Roomba requires a certain amount of upkeep and uh, and uh, and TLC mm-hmm. and uh, and battery life to uh, to maintain its objectives. I see. So it's it's a much more nurturing relationship than people tend to uh, to think when they first purchase a robotic vacuum cleaner. 
Well, and I suppose the same thing is going on with the ISS. And yes. In the same way, it's kind of like a giant room, but it's very sensitive, and you have to keep maintaining I it. I wonder if anyone ever gets annoyed with a coworker and then goes and talks to Robonaut about it. And they're, they're just like, oh, my God, Cindy will not shut up and uh, about uh, uh, about her cats. And so you're just you know completely over there just crying to, to Robonaut about it. Well, that's the thing. Um, you know, astronauts are are basically trained to sort of self-soothe and they're, they're trained in conflict resolution because the idea is that you don't, you want to be able to board, uh, the ISS mm-hmm. with as even keel and as many tools in your toolbox in dealing with others. Yes. As opposed to, um, sort of dealing with the after effects of that. Right. Because, because so, obviously somebody sulking and turning off all communication, uh, is not really an option that is, that, is, yeah. that is to be avoided at all costs and i have read too that in instances where there are some really dire situations that that uh astronaut or astronauts can then video sort of their complaint and send like it like a to confessional mich- kind of <laughs> like mtv reality like when the, the, the i think they were the precursor of this right mm-hmm. um <clears throat> and then mission control can review it and sort of give feedback. But those are really dire situations. The idea is to to board and to try to self-soothe and to correct yourself as many places as possible. So to that end, uh, another tool in the toolbox, uh, well, drugs. Oh, that's right. I mean, uh, medication is, is certainly uh, extremely helpful uh, in situations such as this. And there are a number of them. Um, some of these are medications that, of course, deal with just the uh, some of the, the physical symptoms of, of, of weightlessness that deal with nausea or headaches and what mm-hmm. have you. Um, there are also things that deal with uh, bone mass. Uh, but then there are, there are also um, various medications that are very uh, honed in on the, the mind and the mental states. Uh, Modafinil, right? This is, yes. this is a mood enhancement, uh, memory-improving and mood-brightening psychostimulant. So this enhances wakefulness, attention capacity, and vigilance, which is really important, right? Because if you're trying to adjust to all this and you have research that you have to conduct, if you have a spacewalk, you want to be alert. Yeah, it's all about optimizing their performance no matter how fatigued or cranky they are. So Because, I mean, it comes down to it. If there's something that really needs to be done on ISS, uh, you know, and it's, you know, potentially life or death, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're tired. It doesn't matter if you're in a cranky mood. Here, take three of these and go do a spacewalk. Yeah, it's kind of the suck it up drug. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about the psychotic contingency plan. All right, we're back. So, duct tape. It's not just something that's super useful here on Earth, also in outer space, turns out. Yes. Now, duct tape uh, it comes in handy in cases of space madness. Now, um, <laughs> of course, space madness is one of the great tropes of, uh, of science fiction, the idea that people will go into space and uh, they'll they'll go a little mad and there's as we've discussed here there's a certain amount of truth to that it's a, mm-hmm. it's a it's an environment that can tax the human body and the human mind it can force people uh into uh into places in their own minds they're maybe not used to going someone could conceivably snap so you see it all the time in films people are always experiencing space madness be it like sunshine or pandorum or i mean the, the, the list goes on people go nuts they do crazy things and certainly duct tape could be helpful in this case if you needed to duct tape your sane uh co-workers up and then force everyone to have a tea party on the outside of the ship 
But it's also oddly useful. specific. <laughs> but it's also very useful, according to NASA, in dealing with that um, individual before he or she makes everyone go out for a tea party. It's true. So that's why, in addition to duct tape, uh, NASA also has tranquilizers on hand in case anyone flies off the handle in a serious way. According to a 2007 report from the AP, Associated Press, astronauts keep a few tranquilizers on hand, and NASA recommends binding the individual's wrists and ankles with duct tape, strapping them down with a bungee cord, and, if necessary, sticking them with that tranquilizer. That makes me feel better, just to know that there is a contingency plan. Yeah. Because, again, it's a high-stakes environment. And if somebody goes off the handle, there's not a lot of room to deal with them. There's not a brig. You're going to have to just duct tape them up and, and settle them down with some uh, some soothing pharmaceuticals. It's true. If someone flies off the handle here at uh, HSW headquarters, they can just go down to the little store in our uh, building. They can get some Smarties, a banana, yeah. cool off a bit. But, uh, yeah, outer space, you've got a lot of money at stake uh-huh. and a lot of man hours. Yeah. So you can't have the, the craziness going on. Yeah, you can't just go out for a, a stroll. I mean, you could go out for a stroll, but that's just going to be even more pressure. So that leads us to this next sort of idea of how to deal with emotions in space, how to deal with our humanness, and that is soothing the savage beast with music. Yes. I mean, uh, music has always been a part of our journeys into space. I mean, the, if you've followed my uh, space music blog series at all, you'll see that uh, in addition to me just sharing stuff that has various levels of connection to uh, to space and space exploration. I, I, I've done a number of posts about astronauts bringing up instruments, uh, smuggling instruments aboard, various music that has taken place in space or in somehow involved um, space exploration data in one way or another. And uh, and as we've talked about before, music is a powerful thing. It, it, can, it can really change your mind. It can control the way you're feeling. It can dictate the way you feel. So it, and also more importantly, it is a slice of life on planet Earth that you can bring up with you. It's another part of our environment that can be taken into this hostile, unreal environment and make everything seem a little more normal. Yeah, I mean, there are a raft of studies that talk about the healing qualities of, or the healing properties of music. Just recently, uh, this week, there was an item about how live music, in particular, played in neonatal intensive care units, actually helped uh, preemie babies to um, sort of recover from some of those um, complications that arise from premature birth. Much faster. So, you know, imagine, yes, you are in this environment on the ISS. You've got some sensory deprivation going on. You're not able to cuddle all the time and have that 20-second hug that we know releases mm-hmm. oxytocin and makes you feel better. Unless you're going up to the robonaut. But then he, he, I don't know how, how nice his hugs are. Or you have your hug shirt on. No, that's true. You could have yeah. hug shirt technology, yeah. Uh, you, you, can, you can bring that music with you. You can play it. Um, Chris Hadfield actually has a special guitar that he plays on board the ISS. Uh, the thing is, you still have to try to relearn that, right? Because your hands are moving differently. He says that when you're moving fast on the neck of the guitar, you often miss the frets. Because on Earth, you're used to the weight of your arm, which kind of helps you track where your hand is going. But without gravity, you overshoot the mark. So in this soothing <laughs> in this soothing uh, version of music, you still, I'm sure, have a, a bit of frustration getting to that point. You're like, okay, it's going to take me a week to master <laughs> playing the guitar again in space. But when I do, boy, will I be soothed. What I love about this is that here on Earth, he probably doesn't even rank. Uh, um, like, I mean, there's no doubt. He doesn't even rank among the top guitarists. 
there there are many great guitarists on earth and he's he's but an ant in their shadow right but take the game up into orbit and he outclasses them all i bet oh yeah everyone else would be just fumbling in space he shreds yeah for sure um but here's the thing about musical instruments uh any of them can be brought up but for safety they all have to meet certain standards yes yes which instrument would you I was going to say, say that, that like an organ would be kind of difficult. Uh, or yeah, grand piano would yeah. be sort of difficult too. Um, so for safety, the current electronic keyboard that's on the ISS had to be tested to ensure there wasn't a significant source of electromagnetic radiation, which could throw off the, the instruments mm-hmm. on board. Um, and then all instruments have to be tested for toxicity. Even a trace amount of something like an oil-based chemical like benzene is dangerous for astronauts to inhale in enclosed space. Yeah, like I think back to um, when I played trumpet in high school, and that thing was just, I mean, it's full of oils and mm-hmm. spit. I mean, the spit valve is pretty nasty uh, <laughs> and disturbing here on Earth. Imagine in orbit where it's just, you. It's just it, I don't even know where how it would collect. I, I, I would have, to, I have, have not researched it, but now I'm suddenly really interested in trumpet playing in orbit. I'm sure someone's brought one up. I, I bet they got the stink eye if they played it, though. Yeah. Right? You probably have to go in the bathroom, cry there, and then play your, your trumpet there. Just, so that yeah. the spit Sounds like it would be a mess. Um, another way that I think is really important that we've seen emerge out of the ISS um, is this idea of documenting your experience as a way to sort of cope with the realities yeah, of and this has been a part of uh, of NASA's uh, plan for uh, mental stability in space uh, from pretty early on. You know. Yeah, and I think that it's uh, even just that these rote things, this minutia, I think to me sort of gets at least me excited about space exploration because it really does pull back the curtain. So not only does Chris Hadfield regularly tweet stunning photos of Earth, which in and of itself is, is glorious to behold, um, he's got his SoundCloud samples, as we heard at the top of the uh, episode, of just various things in space or on the ISS mm-hmm. that you hear. And I, I think that's, one, interesting because it's sort of like a soundtrack to your racer head, which yeah. has lots of crazy ambient noises to it. But two, really does give you insight into to what that existence might be like. So, yeah, it might just be, uh, you know, some sort of insight into, like, how do you deal with fingernail clipping in space? Yeah. But still, that is is something that you're like, you know, I never thought about that. I never thought that just clipping my nails would fly off into the face of coworkers or, or that you'd have to have a special process for that. Well, if you've ever been hit in the face by a fingernail flying off of clippers, then you know that it can be extremely dangerous. Well, you already know how I feel about fingernail clipping in the office. Yes. So I think you can imagine the sort of hackles that would be raised for me if I were an astronaut next to someone who was uh, clipping their fingernails. But again, this drives home this idea that nothing is sort of normal or just rote or boring in space because everything has to be rethought, relearned, and thought about. You know, if I can come back to uh, media aboard ISS for a minute, uh, a, a few years back they actually released a list of the various books, DVDs, and albums that were available up there. And I imagine it's changed since then because now everything's even more and more digital. It just doesn't make sense for there to be a bunch of physical albums or physical books located on uh, the ISS, but some of the musical options included um, The Age of Aquarius by The Fifth Dimension. There was um, the album American Patriot by Lee Greenwood. There was uh, Woven in Time by Steve Green. There was col- there, You could also listen to College Fight Songs, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Oh, my. Uh, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9, The Very Best of Sting and the Police. 
Elephant by the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, it was a it was a pretty interesting list. And then when you weren't listening to those musics, you could watch uh, a DVD of Oh Brother Where Art Thou, uh, Serenity, C Lab Twenty Twenty One, and you could uh, you could also read uh, the likes of uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation. And so that reminds me that it's not just that there are astronauts up there doing things um, in a very autonomous way. There is a sort of big brother figure, I guess you could say, in the form of uh, mission control. Right. It, making sure that things are going smoothly. And I thought it would be interesting to bring up that they are keeping an eye and ear out. In fact, it was a Russian support staff uh, member that spotted that the canary in the coal mine during a mission is the cosmonaut's speech rhythms. Because hmm. this will tell you early signs of strain. So even just monitoring the speech patterns gives mission control an idea of what is going on. And in the case of the, the Russian uh, support staff member, they actually would arrange surprise gifts when they heard tension in speech patterns. Surprise gifts? Mm-hmm. Like hidden uh, um, on the, on, the uh, on board already? In supply ships. Oh, okay. They'd send it up. Yep, and then then they would arrange for cheery uh, telephone calls from celebrities or you know uh, from family members just to try to keep everybody's spirits up. Interesting, yeah, sort of the man behind the curtain. Yeah, and then there's this idea that you can keep your spirits up by focusing on the wonder and the awe of it all. Uh, Nicole Stott is an astronaut, and she said, I believe that she was in a 2010 mission. She described a sense of wonder and awe um, by saying that one of the most interesting things to me is that while I'm still in floating, I can feel the reaction, or maybe better described as emotion through my body, from something as slight as my heartbeat. My heart beats, and I can actually feel like the space station is moving around me because of it, when in fact it's really my whole body gently moving in response to it and not the station motion at all. Well, there you have it. Life in space, crying in space, emotion in space. Uh, it, it does make you think. So let's call over our own Robonaut uh, to provide us with a little listener mail. This first one comes to us from Murphy. Murphy writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I go to school in Boston, and so I ride the elevators every day. When I ride with other people, I tend to act with normal elevator behavior. But when I ride them alone, things get a little strange. After the door closes, I like to kneel on the ground. Then as the elevator starts to lift, I stand up on one foot, knee out, elbow in, and one arm in the air. I kind of hope that if anyone was watching me with x-ray or something, it would look like I was a superhero leaping up off the ground with amazing strength. Sometimes I just pace in circles as I go up, and other times I face with my back to the door and turn around dramatically after it's full open. Uh, I love the show, derp and stuff. <laughs> I love everything about that, yeah, including the sign-off. It, being uh, on an elevator alone, it does sort of... I don't know if there's anything particularly weird I do. I guess I'm more prone to, to move around and sort of bob and weave a little bit if I'm caffeinated. Sure. I think all of us do. Maybe maybe do some personal grooming if there's a mirror, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes I feel like, like when you know when the door opens and you don't think anyone's on and then you go on? Mm-hmm. And then, but there's somebody's already aboard, and they're like, and, and so there's this awkward moment where they're like, "I'm trying to get off," and then you're like, "I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been rushing on board the elevator." But then, like, I kind of judge them too because I feel like you were hiding in the shadows or something, you know? Like, <laughs> where did you come from? You should have been more clearly visible. Why weren't you standing right at the door? Uh, I, I challenge you next time that happens to have that discussion with that person and be like, you know, I, I have got to talk to you about something. <laughs> Can I do, pull you aside and talk to you about how I feel like you're doing this intentionally and hiding in the shadows <laughs> and what that's doing to me emotionally? 
All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Eric, who uh, writes into us pretty regularly and says, uh, When I was a kid, my dad was part owner of a small plane. We were flying at night, and I noticed a faint blue ring where the prop was. My dad took his hand and put it close to the windshield, and tiny bolts of lightning shot out of his fingers. I tried it, too, and felt a slight tingling, but it was uh, fun to pretend to be Emperor Palpatine. Uh, I know St. Elmo's fire isn't lightning, but it was still cool. I've never been struck myself, but it's a subject that fascinates me. There was actually a televised soccer game that was struck by lightning. It was strange because several players were hurt, while several were not. Some of the injured players were much farther away from where the lightning struck the field than players who were not hurt. It was later discovered that only the players with both feet on the ground were the ones hurt. Eric. Hmm. Uh, that just reminded me that one of our um, listeners I'm very fond of was was asking about us doing an episode on tinnitus. And uh, recently there was a news item about the connection between tinnitus and lightning. So hmm. perhaps something that we want to explore, the sort of after effects. And we did explore it a bit in terms of migraines yeah, as well. But anywho. Cool. All right. Well, hey. You guys know the uh, the spiel. If you would like to talk to us about any of this, if you have some comments about elevators, comments about lightning, comments about uh, the ISS, about weightlessness in reality or in fiction, your uh, expectations of life in orbit, uh, or what do you think about uh, these cool uh, SoundCloud files of, of ambient noise aboard the ISS, would you be able to sleep through that? Or are you like me? Would you prefer to sleep through that? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are stuff to blow your mind on both of those. You can also find us on Twitter, uh, where our handle is Blow the Mind. Also find us on YouTube, where we have all these videos. Uh, you can find us there as Mind Stuff Show. But also, uh, I think Stuff to Blow Your Mind redirects to that as well. And hey, we have a website. You can find us there at www.stufftoblowyourmind.com. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that shows us in the talkies, in those videos yes. in which we talk. Um, also, if you uh, if you don't mind sharing, let us know what thing you would miss the most if you are on the ISS. Uh, you can shoot us an email at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.